Good morning. It's good to be with you guys. It's, a, it's my joy to be with you guys again. Uh, two weeks ago, we began this journey kind of smack dab in the middle of Romans, and we studied Romans 6, 1 through 14. Uh, this morning, we're kind of piggybacking off of that text, and we're going to continue through the end of chapter 6. Uh, and, and this morning, there's going to be three points. Uh, if you are a note taker, I love writing notes. Uh, we have a pamphlet for you guys inside the bulletin. Uh, if not, uh, everything will be on the screen, uh, so don't worry, the texts will be there. Um, but we'll be picking up in Romans 6, chapter 15 through 23. The main theme of this morning is going to be around this term called sanctification. Um, and instead of unloading some sort of definition, a robust definition of sanctification at the front end, we're going to kind of bake it into the text this morning. We're going to kind of learn from the text. What is the text saying about this word, sanctification? Um, so stay tuned. Um, also, um, the main thrust of Paul's argument, he's going to keep on developing this argument on what does it mean to live in Christ? What does it mean to live the Christian life? He's going to use a lot of contrast that we saw in the earlier part of chapter 6, and he's going to give us one imperative compared to the four imperatives that we saw last week, um, but we're going to use that one imperative to give us three points of application. A large emphasis of our time, again, is going to be on this term sanctification. What does it mean to grow in Christ's likeness, and what does it mean to participate in the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work in our lives? Not just individually, but also communally. Also, before we jump into the text this morning, I want to remind you some really key, important things that give us the backdrop of what is Romans? How are we to read this passage? Just a really quick background and review of what Romans is. This genre, the literary genre of the book of Romans, is it's an epistle. And what is an epistle? It's a letter that's instructional, it's didactic, it teaches something. Um, and the date, scholars believe that this book was written, this epistle was written between 56, 56 and 57 AD. You're like, why do I need to know that? <laughs> Two weeks ago, we, we addressed historically, this really helps us understand the context of who Paul is writing to. Roughly during this time, we find out from Roman historian Suetonius that in 49 AD, just short of a decade before this letter was written, that something goes on. Suetonius tells us that Emperor Claudius expels all the Jews um, from, from Rome. Uh, they, there's all this controversy and fight over who is this guy, Christus, who, who we know is Christ today. Um, so this historian tells us that all the Jews are expelled out of Rome. Um, and what happens to the church then? The church is comprised of two groups. It's the Jewish community, the Jewish Christians, and the non-Jewish, the Gentile Christians. And so when Claudius expels the Jews, all of a sudden, what does the church look like? A bunch of Gentiles. And naturally, what happens with this church, people have to take leadership to continue what this church looks like. So the liturgy is going to look different. The DNA of the church is going to look more Gentile. This is kind of a problem in the sense that when the new emperor, Emperor Nero, allows the Jews to come back to Rome from exile, what do the Jewish Christians find when they come back to their gatherings? What happened? <laughs> All of a sudden, everything starts to look more Gentile. 
it almost looks like they're being ousted out of this church community. And so it's highly likely that there's a lot of warring tension going on between these two parties. This also helps us kind of understand the reason for Paul writing the, uh, the book of Romans. And we see that there's two major reasons that are overarching for this book. First is that Paul wants to provide a very robust theological resume for this church. Why? Because he's cognizant. He knows, he's aware that there are some people that have been kind of running a smear campaign of Paul, kind of throwing him under the bus. Uh, They're talking badly about his character, things that were not true, false accusations about his teaching, saying that uh, it's anti-Mosaic law, that it's anti, pretty much Old Testament, it's anti-Jewish. And Paul's like, that is not what I'm about. That's not my message. And and so he writes this letter to to kind of readdress those things, to articulate, this is our message. As believers in Christ, we believe these things. He's also trying to generate interest uh, for his mission to Spain where he wants to preach the gospel. And so by telling him all the things that we believe, he wants to spark in them a desire to tell others in Spain. Also, like all the other epistles that we see from Paul is that he's addressing the issue of the church. And what is the issue? It's the butting of heads with the Jewish and the non-Jewish community. And how do we do this? It's through Christ. He doesn't try to synthesize some sort of humanitarian effort within the church, like we need to do A, we need to do B, and through that we will have C, a healthy church. No, he says, we come around the message of Christ. So the title of our sermon this morning um, is just that. It's in Christ, sanctified into Christ-likeness. So again, we're addressing three points, and I'm going to be reading the whole text to kind of start us off this morning. So text uh, is Romans 6, starting in verse 15. Uh, If you don't have your Bibles, it'll be up on the screen. Verse 15 begins with What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once, represented, or what, you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, but what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Amen. The first point this morning is those in Christ receive Christ and His righteousness, not just righteousness. It's interesting, verse 15, he begins with this question, so what? (laughs) He's saying, what then? What's very interesting, and this is something we studied uh, in the Wednesday night Bible study, shameless plug, if you want to learn more and prepare your hearts for Sundays, come to the Wednesday night Bible studies. In this past Wednesday night Bible study, we kind of looked at this, the syntax of this. We kind of looked at the way that Paul parallels a question that he asked in verse 1 with the same kind of question he asks in verse 15. There's some similarities in the question, but there's some differences. What are the differences? Paul moves in verse 1 from a, should we do A so that B happens? In other words, should we pursue sinning so that God's grace would be magnified, which is pivoting off of that point in chapter 5, verse 20. He moves from that here in verse 15, where he asks the questions, should we do A because B? In other words, should we pursue sinning because we have freedom from the law under God's grace? He's pivoting off of verse 14 in chapter 6. He's saying, well, we're, we're free from the law, but should Christians continue sinning because they're free from the law? He's almost drawing the conclusion that, well, since we're not under the law anymore, it doesn't really matter what we do. How does he answer this short question? Paul gives a forceful, resounding, wholehearted, by no means, just like how he did in the previous part of this chapter. The little rendering of this is, never Never may that be. Being under God's grace does not mean carte blanche Christianity. It does not mean my power, my judgment call, my rules. It does not mean being unhitched from the law. It does not give us freedom to do what I want, where I want, how I want to do because I have faith in Christ. One New Testament scholar, uh, he writes this. He says, grace does not free us to do anything we want. It does not provide the opportunity for us to live apart from all restrictions. Freedom, oh, thank you. I'm getting too excited over here. One New Testament scholar says, grace does not free us to do anything we want. It does not provide the opportunity to live apart from all restrictions. Freedom is not the exercise of unlimited spontaneity. He writes, it means to be set free from the bondage of sin in order to live in a way that reflects the nature and character of God. And Paul continues this argument in the next verse, in verse 16. He says, do you not know? What is Paul implying that they already know? He's implying that you have a choice of who your master is going to be, of who you're going to serve, and these choices have consequences. He's writing to him saying, you know this. And at first glance, it seems a little odd 
It seems a little puzzling uh, for some that didn't grow around the church environment or Christian influences that Paul uses slavery as a metaphor for a relationship between a Christian and a loving God. It's, it's very odd. In fact, Paul uses the slave metaphor eight times just between verses 16 and 22. He draws this contrast between either being a slave of sin or a slave of God. Also captured in those terms, slave of obedience and slave of righteousness. He says, you got to pick. You're going to either be a slave to sin or a slave of God. So why? Why does Paul use slavery as this metaphor to describe the Christian life? Well, for two reasons. First, Paul seems to be building this theology, this doctrine of sin. As we discussed in our Wednesday night Bible study, since chapter 1, Paul has been constructing this theology. What is sin? And therefore, what he's able to do is he's able to pinpoint this is what's at the core. This is the heart of sin. He explains that this is a willful disobedience. He contrasts that by, by saying, uh, contrast being a slave of obedience and being a slave to sin. He's implying that sin is the enemy of obedience. Thereby, since humanity is sinful, there's this contrast between humanity and God. He's showing us that humanity is an enemy of God naturally. Sin is that enemy of obedience, enemy of God. Secondly, Paul is also teaching this enslavement to sin is the problem of humanity. Robert Mounts, another New Testament scholar, writes this, and I quote, From this we may rightly infer that the essence of sin is disobedience. Sin is not simply something that we can't help but doing, but something we choose to do in direct violation of the will of God. It may be forgiven, but it is not something that we make excusable due to extenuating circumstances. The righteousness to which obedience leads is the righteousness of personal growth in spiritual maturity. Paul continues this by kind of giving us an irony for the unbeliever. He says in, the, in this verse um, that unbelievers, people before Christ, those in Adam, they think that they're already free without Christ. They think that if they did choose to commit their life to Christ, to serve God, that they would have to actually give up their freedom. But what Paul is trying to say here is, no, 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 no. They're actually slaves. They're serving sin, and they just don't realize it. Paul is echoing Jesus' teaching when, in Matthew 26, Jesus explains, no one can serve two masters. This is also kind of recapitulating this point that we see with Joshua when he challenges the Israelites at Shechem when he says, choose this day whom you will serve. Paul is saying, look at the outcome of your obedience. If you choose to be a slave to sin, if you choose sin to be your master, this leads to death. But if you choose to be a slave of obedience, a slave to righteousness, a servant of God, this leads to righteousness himself. Wednesday night, 
Oh man, I love Wednesday night. Wednesday night, uh, during the Bible study, we talked about uh, justification and righteousness, these two terms that we find in the Bible. One of the common misunderstandings uh, of justification and righteousness, sadly, it kind of comes from poor teaching about salvation. In some churches, you might hear uh, the preacher say, have heaven today for free. Thank you so much. You might hear a preacher uh, say, say yes and choose eternal life. This communicates something different. Uh, I love how Michael Reeves, uh, a theologian, he, he says this, he comments and he says, uh, and I quote, people would think, in response to this question, have heaven today, you know, choose eternal life today, people would think, well, I love myself, I want good things for me, I, I want heaven for me, not hell, so I say yes, I will take heaven today, <laughs> you know, but they're never transformed And I quote, he says, that's a key misunderstanding of justification that was thrown out by the Roman Catholic Church to the Reformers. If you preach salvation by grace alone, there will be no motivation for holiness. So Calvin, one of the Reformers, um, he says this. He's the first to address this Roman Catholic cardinal. um, And he explains, "You, you can't just extract justification from God you can't siphon out his righteousness from our union with Christ in Christ. No. Justification means that the repentant sinner who believes gets Christ himself and Christ's righteousness. Calvin explains this. We want to live his life. We want to have his spirit who transforms us into his image. Martin Luther, another great reformer, uh, he says, um, as he addresses this problem, that God imputes, he ascribes, he credits us what is not ours. He credits his righteousness that was foreign to us. He calls this his term of alien righteousness, that it is not a part of our ontological existence. Nothing we ever did could achieve that for us. It is foreign to us. And he uses that and credits that to us. This means that the Son, when He took on flesh, He took on the fullness of humanity, He took on the sinful nature, and through the fullness of His divinity, forced it into submission to the will of the Father. Perfect submission. Perfect. Christ lived a perfectly sinless life and died to sin on the cross. And as we studied last week, that his death meant that we died to sin too in him. Do you remember last week how we piggybacked, we used Paul's illustration of baptism, this confession of the faith that, I'm going to use water here, um, but that when we, when Christ died, his death is our death to sin, that his burial is our burial. His resurrection is our resurrection, and His new life is our new life that we're maturing into. This is sanctification, where we're looking more and more like Christ day by day, 
hour by hour, moment by moment, those in Christ receive Christ and His righteousness, not just righteousness. Spurgeon says this, he says, you stand before God as if you were Christ, because Christ stood before God as if He were you. Amen. So what do we do with this union in Christ? What do we do knowing that Christ has imputed His righteousness, He has credited us His righteousness? Point number two this morning is those in Christ delight in obeying Christ and are ashamed of their sin. I want you to look at verse 17. Paul writes, thanks be to God. Now, this is interesting. Um, as he's teaching, he, he's grateful for God. He's showing his gratitude for God. What did God do in this moment? Why is he thanking God? Surely, Paul is not thanking God that there were once slaves to sin. You know, the, the, the Greek is somewhat difficult to translate in this text. It's, it's difficult to interpret. Um, and, and what's really cool that helps us understand this text better is that Paul uses this passive tense in, here in verse 18. When he says, having been set free, this aorist passive tense, uh, having become slaves, he, he uses this passive to indicate that it's not their actions that change their station. It's not their actions that change what's going on. It doesn't earn them righteousness. It was not their works that freed them from slavery to sin. This passive tense indicates God's action. It was God who was the acting agent. God, in His grace, frees the sinner from their enslavement to sin. God grants forgiveness. God justifies the sinner in Christ's death on the cross. God enables the sinner to respond in faith through His Spirit. God transforms the once rebellious, transgressing heart. God gives Himself in the person of His Son and His Spirit. God establishes us in righteous living from the Father through the Son, in the Spirit. It is God who saves. It is God who sanctifies. And what Paul is saying here is, thanks be to God. Look at verse 17 again. What Paul writes is this response to thankfulness. Now that, now that they are able to respond, what does he write here? He observes and he says, they, these believers, have become obedient. He's placing emphasis on this willful submission to God instead of a will, willful disobedience to God. He says he is thankful that they're obedient to God. And look how he describes this submission, this obedience. It was from the heart. This is indicating the depth of that obedience. This was not a superficial service. This was not a partial promise or what Matt said, a partial covenant. This is one that they took delight in. Their obedience was from the heart. Verse 19, Paul uses this phrase, speaking in human terms because of their natural limitations. Many have follow, fo followed this popularized interpretation that's a little sad. <laughs> it's, it's, they, some people have believed that Paul is admitting that his slave metaphor is a poor illustration. 
Some have even recognized that Paul is saying um, that humanity has a limited understanding that is insufficient, this insufficient human mental capacity to understand their relationship with God. So, in other words, Christians are oblivious because they can never understand their relationship with God. Although there could be some level of humble truth in there, um, a more reasonable, helpful interpretation um, comes from this ESV's translation. It helps us with the rendering and kind of working out the the Greek. Um, But instead of using natural limitations, um, we can kind of move in this gloss of weakness of flesh. What is Paul saying here? Therefore, what Paul could be saying here is a literal rendering could be in human terms, I'm speaking on account of the weakness of the flesh. How is this helpful for us this morning? Paul isn't inviting in some new subject saying, but we can't understand the things I've been explaining. That's not what Paul is saying. He is kind of, again, recapitulating. He's reiterating the same point from verse 12, that we are inclined to sin, that our natural limitations are that we're weak in the flesh. Some great songs have recaptured this with, we are prone to wander. We are prone to, we are inclined to sin. We are prone to have greater desires for things rather than God, for the created rather than the creator. C.S. Lewis, in one of his sermons, The Weight of Glory, um, he writes about this, and I quote, he says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Lewis writes, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when an infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. May our prayer this morning echo that great modern, somewhat modern hymn, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Paul is building this understanding of what shame a Christian will feel towards his sin. And he continues this in verse 19. He writes, with our only imperative in this whole last section, compared to four last two, or two weeks ago, he only gives us one command, one challenge. Uh, and it's this word that we see already in verse 13, uh, where Paul brings back this term, uh, where he says, present this action, this challenge, this command, this charge to the church, present yourselves. And just like verse 13, many scholars see this um, as kind of this language of master builder trade language of offer your tools to the master builder. Some people see more of a military language of yield your instrument, yield your weapon for the war. He's saying present yourselves for God, for His righteousness, fully submitted, fully obedient, 
this will lead to your sanctification. In verse 20, Paul continues and states that when you were slaves to sin, when you were in Adam, chapter 5 language, when you were in Adam before Christ, you were free in regard to righteousness. You were free from righteousness. You know, at first glance, it looks really good, right? Freedom looks really good. But this is not a positive freedom. Even though freedom means no one wants to be a servant, no one wants to be a slave to something, look at this text again. Those who are free from righteousness are actually slaves to something else. They are slaves to sin. Once again, Paul is saying that there is no middle ground. There's no gray area with this. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to God. As we continue to run on through this passage this morning, I want to direct your attention to verse 21. It also has its difficulties. One scholar comments and says, it would help the reader to remember that as we read verse 21, keep in mind that when Paul uses this word karpos, fruit, that always has a positive meaning with Paul. There's this long list in Romans 1, 13, Romans 6, 22, Romans 15, 28, 1 Corinthians 9, 7, Ephesians 5, 9, Philippians 1, 11. Paul always uses fruit language as a positive thing. Therefore, Paul is not asking them to reflect on the bad fruit that accumulated when they were slaves to sin. Instead, how we should read verse 21 should be, Paul is asking them to reflect on the lack of fruit the lack of good fruit when they were slaves of sin. A life in Adam, a life apart from Christ, enslaved to sin, leads to death and is impure and to lawlessness that leads to more lawlessness. The tragedy of an unjustified, unsanctified life in Adam is there is no fruit There is work and toil, but no fruit. Therefore, those in Christ look back when they were slaves to sin and they're ashamed. They look at that lack of fruit and now they feel shame. In John Piper's Don't Waste Your Life, uh, he tells the story of a man, and I quote, uh, who's, who stubbornly resisted family members. Maybe we all know people like that in our families, but stubbornly resisted. Like, I don't want Christ. Family members who sought to lead him to Christ. And finally, when John Piper's father, who was a traveling evangelist, came to town, the Spirit moved on this tough sinner's heart. And at last, this man yielded and was marvelously saved. But in the church, Amid the joyful noise of celebration came the sound of bitter lament. I've wasted it. I've wasted it. It was the man himself lamenting the waste of the majority of his life in selfishness and in sin. I want to ask you guys a few questions this morning. Believers, uh, those of you guys in Christ, are you wasting your life? by delighting in things more than God? Are you lacking gospel fruit? Are you lacking sanctification in your lives? 
Or are you delighting in obedience? Are you savoring Christ? Or are you savoring sin? Our third and final point this morning is those in Christ evidence their justification by their sanctification, which leads to eternal life and Christ-likeness. I love this contrast between verse 21 and verse 22. Again, where he kind of sums up everything he's talked about up to this point, where he says, slaves to sin, they lack good fruit. They're brought to shame, and their outcome is death. Verse 22 says, but slaves to God are free from sin's enslavement. They receive good fruit, which leads to sanctification and therefore leads to eternal life. Last week, I got to, or two weeks ago, I got to use uh, an example of uh, my friend, we'll call him Mike for this service, but my friend Mike, um, he was the guitarist in our traveling ministry, uh, and a lot of times, his actions off stage were very bad. In fact, when we confronted him and said, hey, your actions off stage outside of the church services that we're going to, like, it's really inhibiting your message. Like, you are the hypocrite. <laughs> like, textbook hypocrite. <laughs> Mike, what are you going to do about this? His response, again, was, hey, man, I'm just building up my testimony so that God's grace looks even bigger in my life. I'm making God look good. Again, this is that heresy of antinomianism. Literally, what antinomianism means, nomon meaning law in the Greek, that it's anti-lawism. It's this heretical belief that believers, Christians, don't need to be moral because they have faith in Christ. Their actions don't matter. They're simply saved by their faith. So R.C. Sproul, a theologian, writes this. He says, antinomianism's primary error is confusing justification with sanctification. We are justified by faith alone apart from works. However, all believers grow in faith by keeping God's holy commands, not to gain God's favor, but out of loving gratitude. Again, Paul's language. Out of loving gratitude for the grace already bestowed on them through the work of Christ. You see, justification, I want to make sure you, you understand this this morning and that I communicate it well. Justification is instant. As soon as the repentant believer places his faith in Christ and he believes, he repents and believes in Christ, he is declared righteous because he receives Christ. But sanctification, on the other hand, is not instant. In fact, it's this lifelong process. It's slow. It's hard. Michael Reeves, another theologian uh, who we quoted from earlier, he says, by receiving Christ himself, we receive his righteousness and his spirit who transforms us, meaning that if you're united with Christ, our text from last week, if you're united with Christ, if you're in Christ, you therefore have righteousness of Christ. But it is impossible for you not to be transformed. Though we are instantly justified, sanctification is not instant. Those in Christ live in this already not yet reality. In our Sunday school class this morning, we talked a little bit about Stan, Stan the man. Um, he, he brought up this concept of, of 
already but not yet, um, where those in Christ already have Christ Himself and His righteousness. But as we learn, we're in this not yet period where the fullness of His glory hasn't been manifested instantly in our lives. We are not perfect people after we pray some prayer. It's this long maturation. It's this long process of maturing into His likeness. As we've said last week, some people have viewed the church as a group full of hypocrites proclaiming a message that they never live up to. In a sense, they're kind of (laughs) right. Do we masquerade ourselves as perfect? No, that's where the hang-up is. We are a group of collected people that are inclined to sin, but we have hope in Christ together. Amen. Amen. So in this already not yet reality, we need Christ. We're not perfect, but there is change as we participate in the Spirit's work. Uh, In order to understand uh, what this means for us, I think it would be helpful for us to kind of glean from others uh, to help with some illustrations. There are two views um, that attempt to explain righteousness uh, and justification, uh, being a new creation, having a new nature in Christ. Uh, The first is what some consider a double nature view. Uh, For those of you guys that grew up watching cartoons in the 90s, uh, I don't know if some of you are here this morning, um, but for myself, um, one of my favorite movies was Emperor's New Groove. Um, And there's this guy who's fairly ignorant that's the muscle of the villain. His name is Kronk. And Kronk, um, it's really neat how Disney kind of teaches us a little bit of Greek philosophy in this. Um, But Kronk has... Uh, whenever he's given a really difficult situation, what appears on his shoulders? Uh, on one shoulder, there's this mini version of Kronk um, that kind of has, I don't know, like devil like paraphernalia on. He's got like a, a little, you know, whatever, th- a staff thing dressed in red, and he's telling Kronk to do bad things. And on the other shoulder, uh, like James knows what I'm talking about, uh, on the other shoulder, uh, there's mini Kronk on this side, but he's wearing some weird angelic thing with a halo. And as he finds himself in difficult situations, uh, what does Greek philosophy teach us is that there's these warring heads where these two guys actually fight, and they bicker at each other, sometimes they brawl, um, and whoever wins, that's his decision. Does he choose to follow the villain or does he follow the hero of the movie? And that's what this double nature view is. It's referred to as uh, the double nature view or black dog, white dog theology where these warring heads where before Christ, those in Adam have one nature uh, and when they are in Christ, when they make a profession, when they repent and believe, they receive a new nature. But the old one is still alive, still active, still present. And so whenever there's this chance to make a decision, do I do this wrong thing, um, that view is that they just war, war, war. The problem with this view is that there's no room for change. Why? Because the old nature is still present, and the new nature doesn't have any power over, just equal to. Very difficult, very difficult. Um, Some people have even illustrated this double nature view as somewhat of like an on and off switch. I realized in our church we are gifted with a lot of electrical engineers um, and people that have served, uh, you know, and and what's so interesting about this concept is that there's either an engage on or engage off light switch. 
Uh, and that's what this view is. Either my holiness is on or off. Whereas this other view, this one nature view, teaches us more of a dimmer type of light switch. Just like the previous view, there's one nature before Christ that is sinful. But once someone, a repentant believer, comes, follows Christ, he dies to sin. His sin nature dies and is replaced with a new nature, Christ's nature, Christ's human nature, Christ's righteousness, Christ and the Spirit himself. And so, following up with this, one New Testament scholar writes, the entrance of the Holy Spirit dispositionally changes a person so that he proceeds down a new path in life. Entrenched patterns of sin and unbelief obscure the way, and they must be rooted out. Yet he is one person, imperfectly living out his one nature. He is no longer a sinner characterized by weakness, but a saint. Even in our best moments, we're not totally free from impurity, that inclined to sin language. Even at our worst, we can still see traces of God's grace in our lives. Most importantly, this one nature allows room for real progress. That doesn't mean the fight gets easier because there are always new battles to face, but it does mean that ground really has been won and held over a lifetime. Others can see this nature in us even, even when we struggle to see it in ourselves. Again, sanctification is evidence of Christ's justification. This is what it means to pursue righteousness in Timothy 6.11. This is what it means to be conformed in the image of His Son, Romans 8.29. This is what it means to grow up in every way into Christ, Ephesians 4.15. This is what it means to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. This is what it means to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, Romans 12. This is what it means to be in Christ, transformed into Christ-likeness. I want to conclude our time this morning with a chance for us as a church to respond. And again, just like uh, two weeks ago, um, there, there are three groups that I want to recognize. The first group, um, for those of you guys that are in Christ, that have a saving faith, you're already, uh, those of you that are already faithfully participating in God's sanctifying work in your life, I want you guys to feel encouraged by this verse, this passage, um, because you're being led into Christ-likeness. For those of you that are, are faithfully pursuing his sanctifying work, be encouraged that although this is a slow and difficult process, it is good. And ultimately, it brings God glory. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 says, and Paul writes this, he says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Those in Christ 
Delight in faithful obedience. Delight in pursuing righteousness. Delight in bearing gospel fruit. Delight in transforming the work of God, or the transforming work of God, and delight in your union in Christ. How do we do this? Build relational equity. We grow as the body of Christ, Ephesians 4 language, we grow as the body of Christ to look more and more like Christ, as a community of Christ. And how do we do this? Where's Al at? Where's Al? <laughs> how do we do this? We lean in. Your church community needs you. Those walking faithfully, your church community needs you. Don't wait for community to just simply appear one day, some Sunday morning. Don't be okay with excuses like, they're not like me. They don't talk like me. They don't dress like me. Um, They don't speak like me. They don't act like me. I want to challenge you guys. Forge relationships. Learn how to lean in for the glory of Christ. Press in together. Delighting in community together by sharing in our weaknesses together, by growing through seasons of suffering together, by praying for one another together, by celebrating together, by confessing our sin together, by serving one another together, growing in generosity together, meeting the needs of one another together, and ultimately growing in Christ-likeness together. So the second group this morning, for those of you who are in Christ and have a saving faith, but maybe you've fallen back into desiring things more than God. Maybe one of those things is comfort, where you don't want to be apart from, or you, you want to be apart from the community of God because it's easier. You've fallen away from community, but you still have a saving faith I want to challenge you guys. You have freedom from the bondage of sin, and you have a new life in Christ. You have been justified. You have Christ's righteousness. You have Christ. Repent and believe in Christ's transforming work and choose to find delight and joy in Him. Believer, you can't do this on your own. Lean in. Christianity was not created to be some individualistic effort. Lean in. Your growth and sanctification happens in a community that leans in. And finally, uh, for that third group, for those of you that are here or online or maybe even just guests with us here this morning, and maybe you personally do not know Christ, and now you do. Maybe you just desire to be in that kind of a community that sharpens you. I want to challenge you guys this morning. Receive Christ. Again, He will have you. Isaiah 55, there's this invitation for sinners saying, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come. Buy and eat. Seek the Lord while he might be found. Call upon him while he is near. Receive Christ. He will have you. You think you're a mess and that you've sinned beyond belief. He will have you. If you feel that you don't deserve his forgiveness because of your sin, turn to Christ because he will have you. Christ gives us hope. Christ gives us 
peace. He gives us a right standing before the Father. Repent and believe in Christ. He will have you. If you want to know more about who Christ is, what it means to be in Christ, in relationship with Him, to have His righteousness, or you want to just learn more about what it means to lean in to church community, we would love to talk with you.